So what we encourage our leaders to do is actually do huddles before and after every shift. The before one is kind of what's going on, what are the issues, how can we help each other? The after is what are people leaving with? If they have any concerns or issues, well, you don't want them to go home with that. You want them to actually leave it their work and you want to create an opportunity for them to talk about that. Welcome to Moments Move Us, a people-first podcast unlocking the power of meaningful moments by bringing you stories that inspire. I'm your host, Rebecca Corin. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Joanne Conroy, Chief Executive Officer and President at Dartmouth Health and a remarkable physician and leader in our industry. In today's episode, Dr. Conroy shares her insights on the importance of patient experiences and how they shape the very essence of physicians. Dr. Conroy also shares how the significance of emotional processing supported her personal experience and informs her today. She highlights the transformative power vulnerability holds and how it has shaped her journey in healthcare leadership. Throughout our conversation, you'll hear how Dr. Conroy's dedication extends well beyond her medical expertise. She is an integral part of Women of Impact, a dynamic group focused on accelerating the presence of women leaders in healthcare. Dr. Conroy also sheds light on the combined efforts to break barriers and create opportunities for women in this field. Prepare to be inspired as Dr. Conroy emphasizes the importance of challenging yourself, stepping outside your comfort zone, and embracing personal growth. She encourages all of us to identify our unique impact and make a meaningful difference in the lives of others. Trust me, her insights will resonate with you long after this episode ends. Let's dive in. Well, Dr. Conroy, welcome to the Moments Move Us podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me, Rebecca. I'd love us to get started talking a little bit about your journey because you went to Dartmouth and now you're the CEO of Dartmouth Hitchcock. Can you share a little bit about what that evolution has been like for you? You know, we have a phrase that we use up here that Dartmouth students spend four years trying to get out of Hanover and they spend the next 40 years trying to get back. And <laughs> I never thought that I would actually fall into that category of returning to a place that I did my undergraduate work. But it's interesting when the job became available, a friend of mine who actually lives up here that I went to college with submitted my name and she called me and she said, heads up, I did this. Would you be interested in it? And I never actually had thought about coming back here. But there were a couple of things that made it feel right. Number one, I was a full scholarship student at Dartmouth. Mm -hmm. My father was disabled when I was 12 years old. Um, we had four kids. He was very clear. A requirement for going to college meant a full scholarship. Mm -hmm. And Dartmouth gave me a full scholarship. I mean, in wow. a time that I don't think a lot of students had full scholarships. I always wondered about how we would get back. Like any alumni, you know, I gave to the campaigns in a modest way, but I felt like I would like to make sure that people that came from a situation that I came from would have the same opportunities. You know, my whole family is really interested in kind of, if you have merit, 
can we give you the opportunity so you can actually achieve what you want to achieve? And it felt like this was absolutely a full circle that Mm. as leading the health system, which is a critically important part of the community up here, it allowed me to actually give back to the community that had been just a wonderful place for me to learn to be not only an adult, but also a leader. You're fortunate if in life you can actually complete that circle. So I'm living the dream up here. (laughs) Wow, that is a full circle moment. And as you kind of walk the campus, do any memories sort of spark for you? Oh, yeah. You know, as a scholarship student, I actually lived off campus because it was less expensive. And the town has not changed that much. You know, the house, I drive right past the house where I lived for two years in the basement because it was $100 a month. The restaurant where I was both the bartender, cook, night manager, and waitress. Actually, you know, I walk by that, although it's another restaurant every week. The campus still has the same feel, an incredible sense of place. It's really focused on the place. I walk some of the same walks I did as a freshman along the Connecticut River. So there's so many things that, you know, bring back those really positive memories of being up here. It's really interesting to hear about sort of the boomerang effect of what New Hampshire and this place has. Can you share a little bit about sort of the special uniqueness of the community in service to the community now in your role um, leading the health system? And it's the largest private employer in the state and the only uh, academic health center. Can you talk a little bit about what that's like and how it might be different from maybe some of the other places that you've served? You know, this is an incredibly unique, you know, organization, situation, and environment. We're the most rural academic medical center in the country. So we sit on 100 acres here, and you actually can't see us from the highway, but you drive down one of two roads, and all of a sudden, it emerges kind of like the Emerald City out of the woods, number one. Number two, very few people appreciate that the positive impact on a community that has an academic medical center, meaning a lot of people that have decided to retire in the Upper Valley come here because of the healthcare. You don't appreciate it until you get older, <laughs> but healthcare is really important and access to healthcare is really important, high quality healthcare. And I appreciate that we are both a safety net, people come to us with their problems. We're an economic driver. We employ between Dartmouth Health and Dartmouth College, we employ the vast majority of the people in the Upper Valley. You are there at the beginning and end of many of their families' lives, and you become actually a known figure in the community. So everywhere else where I've been, I've had this level of anonymity that I could go into a grocery store, you know, with my jeans, ripped jeans on and a t-shirt, and nobody would know who I was. Not up here. And we do solve world problems in aisle three of the local food store called the co-op. I mean, that is the sense of community. I was at a town meeting last night talking about affordable housing and, uh, you know, for three hours sitting with 150 of my best friends, but you're recognizable. With that recognition also becomes a level of responsibility to think more broadly about what's going on within the walls of the institution and think about the broader community. So we're into affordable housing and what do we do about childcare for the community? And what do we do about transportation across the region? 
And it makes the care um, so much more expansive and looking at those social determinants and being sort of on the proactive side of keeping a community healthy. And it's a really unique position to be in. When we talk about the impact of healthcare and social determinants, other people don't get to appreciate that because they're in cities where they're one of three or four large organizations. I mean, we are in Northern New Hampshire and Southern Vermont. Everything draws up here. Let's talk a little bit about you kind of getting started as a provider and how that's evolved over time and some of those stories that have uh, influenced you along the way. Can you think back to times when you were just out of medical school or possibly during and some moments that might have influenced you that maybe you still think about today, even as a CEO of the health system? So I do talk to a lot of medical students about how we as physicians are kind of a patchwork quilt of the experiences we've had with our patients and patients and situations affect us and they make us who we are. You're a little bit unformed, really, as a medical student and as an intern, and you start to form who you are as a physician as you kind of move through both the education and the process of achieving mastery in your specialty. And you become a physician. You're not born one, you're not trained to be one. You become one because of the experiences you have. And I remember when I was an intern, this woman from Orangeburg, South Carolina, she had a really horrible respiratory infection and was in one of our medical intensive care units. I was an intern. I remember doing her intake and talking to her. She was a really simple, but just genuine, wonderful woman. I can see her now with her white hair that was pulled back in a bun. And, you know, it's interesting that every day I would come and talk to her and I'd hold her hand and we'd talk about how she was doing, but her infection was rapidly progressing and she had to be intubated on a ventilator, but I would come by her bed and she would squeeze my hand. She knew that I was there. I do remember, you know, she actually became unresponsive. This is what happens a lot of times when people are horribly sick. They felt that there was no hope of her actually ever getting off the ventilator and surviving. The process is to, you know, remove somebody from the ventilator in the most supportive way possible. And she didn't feel any pain, but it's interesting. Um, I think we sometimes teach people in medicine to be tough. So the minute the team made the decision, they like, everybody marched out of the room. And, but I stayed there. I stayed there until her heartbeat stopped holding her hand. It reminded me that we actually need to be present. I mean, you need to record the passing of somebody. There was no family there. You can't let that go. And you can't just kind of say, well, business as usual. I think you do a disservice. I have this concept of how feelings and consciousness, it's like a square in a round sphere. And every time something happens, that square turns and the edges rub against the sphere. They're not bad feelings. They're just feelings you need to acknowledge. It is, you know, moments like that, you kind of say, oh, that hurts, but you need to appreciate it. And I would then teach residents in the operating room when a patient died, despite our best efforts, not to just turn away, 
and say, well, my job is done and turn off the monitor to appreciate what had happened and that person's life. Just make sure that it becomes part of your patchwork of your quilt because it makes you a better physician. You know, those are the things that I'm not sure you can read it in a book. You need a mentor that's going to say, experience this. Don't try to stuff it. Just experience it and appreciate it. I think I've trained a legion of anesthesia residents to make sure that they just experienced that and actually supported the nurses that were there actually attending to the patient before we you know, brought them for their family to spend some time with them. Dr. Conroy, that is so powerful. And I love the analogy that you shared because as you kind of think of the square sort of uh, revolving, it hurts, but then it's relieving that there's a moment where there's no rub. And, you know, I think about that sort of passing of emotions that if you could just sit with it, then it will continue on, time will continue. And then, you know, you'll come out of that. It's a temporary feeling. But if you don't sit with it, I feel like that's when you get stuck. And then we end up being the victim of not acknowledging, you know, the truth of what we have seen or the humanity that's there because it's painful. Yeah. To take the analogy a little bit further, if you don't acknowledge it, the edges start to rub off and you become a sphere rotating in a sphere and you don't feel anything anymore. Wow. That is so true and so powerful. And I think a lot about how, um, and I think of you as an anesthesiologist and then then leading all these anesthesiologists over time and then how you shared, you've kind of created this whole cohort of folks that are really staying in the moment, but how it's hard, I think in that role and in in a role of a surgeon and other providers and clinicians and really anyone at the bedside to let down the guard to feel that because, you know, you have a protective lining up to help you to do your job, but then, you know, you need to be able to let it down a little bit. How do you balance that? And how do you teach it to people, especially young people who are just starting in the work? So I use the opportunity, um, like in the operating room, I've seen it time and time again, where when the patient is pronounced, the surgeons just turn away. They go look at an x-ray, they go dictate their chart Everybody has different coping mechanisms, but I actually talk to the residents and the medical students about it, and I make them appreciate that moment. It's interesting that I have engaged surgeons to come back to the table and talk about how they have felt. It's a tough time for everybody when you lose a patient, and we have developed these mechanisms to shield us, but They shield us from emotions that are probably important to have. But I can tell you that the nurses that are often scrubbing those cases really appreciate it because a lot of times it's like they're taking care of that patient. And, you know, especially when there's a child or, you know, a trauma victim, I said, you know, it's worth it to help the nurse clean up the body. It actually teaches the physician that we're all part of a team. We're here to help each other and teaches them kind of emotionally how to support each other too. Probably a little prescient. You know, I did this like 30 years ago, but we're in a situation right now where we need that type of awareness more than ever. And just because of the pandemic and the people recovering from it, they just think we need to have a level of kindness. And I think sometimes people don't know how do we get that into the workplace. So how do we get into the workplace, Dr. Conroy? I mean, what you're sharing, I think, is healthcare and supportive 
culture at its best. You know, when the moment is that really tenuous point in time when you lose a patient and there's a team there and the sort of reflex is to quickly turn away, get back to the next thing, onto the next person um, that you can help quash that feeling. But what you're saying is we need to kind of stay there for a minute and help each other in a supportive environment and share that moment so that it can move through us. So we don't become the revolving circles that have no friction in a good way of feeling things. How do we do that in health systems right now when there has been a lot of death that folks have seen way more than prior to the pandemic and the workforce challenges are difficult? So what we encourage our leaders to do is actually do huddles before and after every shift. So the before one is kind of what's going on, what are the issues, how can we help each other? The after is what are people leaving with? Because if they have any concerns or issues, well, you don't want them to go home with that. You want them to actually leave it their work and you want to create an opportunity for them to talk about that. If we can create solutions right there, what you want is that employee to go home, not worried about, I didn't do everything I wanted to do for that patient. I feel like I didn't do my job. I don't want anybody to walk home with that feeling. So we're training leaders to do these kind of, they're really important, you know, beginning and end of shift huddles, and they don't have to take that long. They could take 15 minutes, but it's just checking in to make sure that people aren't leaving with some burden that it's far better if they actually unload it at work. Absolutely. And then they go home and they can be in their best self with their family, which of course is the most important thing for most people. And and they're able to then show up the next day at work refreshed, and then they can be their best selves for their patients. I think the responsibilities healthcare providers has kind of bled into our private lives. You know, it's probably all of our phones, you know, we're immediately available and there's a cost of that, I think. Um, that people don't actually get to decompress. You know, I think the most resilient people are people that actually they're wired to decompress and um, to laugh. I'm like, I'm the big compartmentalizer. You know, I can put stuff in a box and put it on a shelf and then take it down, but I can leave it on that shelf. Some people can't do that. So we're all wired a little bit differently. That is actually a pretty good skill for a resilient person to have. Absolutely. And what are some of the ways besides sort of compartmentalizing and grabbing certain boxes, you know, when ready to process that you like some tactics that you use to do this? It's interesting. Um, as I have kind of matured as a leader, I realize that not every decision needs to be made right away. And sometimes there's real benefit to letting a problem roll around your brain. I'm a big believer in sleep, by the way, that you know, your brain does organize your thinking while you're sleeping. Sleep is super important. And if you don't get enough sleep, I used to think, oh, you know, I can, I'm an anesthesiologist. I can live on five hours sleep a night. It's not true. Your cerebral spinal fluid actually cleans your cells, you know, when you're asleep and it organizes a lot of the things that you're thinking about. So sleeping on it is actually a very good tactic. And you'll find that your brain is kind of organized a little bit differently when you wake up and sometimes a solution that you didn't actually see before is immediately apparent, first of all. Second of all, there's timing and opportunity about when you wanna bring up a tough conversation. 
And sometimes we get into trouble when we try to force it. You know, we kind of have our own timeline of, you know, I've got to have this conversation by X time. I spend a lot of time actually looking for opportunities. Even when I'm in a disagreement with somebody, I have this mantra, don't get mad because when you get angry, you stop listening and you're missing an opportunity to actually change the direction of the debate. And so you need to always be kind of that positive listening for that opportunity. I've become a lot more deft in when I introduce difficult topics. You know, I'm not perfect. Sometimes I do something that feels like it lands like a scud missile in the middle of a table. And I'm like, oh, that was a bad time to bring that up. But I've started to really be very thoughtful about how I bring up difficult topics. And that's both in when I mentor people, when I'm working with my executive team, when I'm working with a physician group, there is some benefit in understanding the importance of timing and opportunity. And let's actually, let's use that um, as a segue to talk a little bit about women in leadership, because I know that mentoring and timing and opportunity are all things that you are passionate about, especially when looking at sort of women and leadership and thinking about the group that you founded, Women of Impact. Can you share a little bit about how that group came to be and some of the work that you all are doing? In 2011, I was invited to go to this retreat. And, you know, I think a lot of us spend so much time in retreats. We're like, I don't think I need another one. You know, most of them have really, you know, good skill, knowledge transfer and, you know, good networking. But I'd been to many. You know, when I attended this leadership retreat, it was really more self-reflective. I was the only person in healthcare there. The focus of the retreat was, now that you're at an influential time in your career, how are you going to use that influence in the most positive way? And how are you actually thinking about your future in a way that you're not bringing your present and your past forward to hold you back? How do you kind of think into a different future? And I thought, hmm, I said, that is really a different way of looking at this. One thing that impressed me is this group of women, within two hours, everybody was sharing personal information that they probably didn't share with their partner. That was very personal, personal and professional personal. I was like, wow, there's a real need for this. So actually, at the end of the retreat, you had to kind of make a statement and it was called a legacy statement, but just basically put a stake in the ground and what you were going to do. And I said, you know, I'm a public figure. You need to push the conversation forward about how do we create a healthcare system that actually works for patients and providers because our current system probably doesn't work. That's a very complicated problem, but I used it in my speaking platform uh, because I spoke a lot nationally, make sure that we didn't forget that that's why we're all here is to make the system work better for everybody we serve. But I realize that there were probably a lot of other women in healthcare that felt the same way. And I said, well, how can I bring them together? And I applied for a grant at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and they gave us $95,000. And we convened the first group in 2013, which was called Women of Impact. And, you know, it's funny, there were 23 of us and they laughed because they said we were all friends of Joanne's, friends of Joanne's relatives, friends of Joanne's friends, or we met Joanne in a cab. But, you know, all this, I brought this group of women together. You know, we have now been together almost 
10 years. And we've got over 150 women. We don't want to necessarily be a big group, but we want to create a space where we're going to elevate women leaders because we realize that in order to really change healthcare, we don't have enough women leaders. And frankly, if we're going on a current trajectory, it'll take 100 years till we have parity in the C-suite. So we need to accelerate that. A number of the things that we've done over the last 10 years is we helped found the Carol Emmett Fellowship, which is a great fellowship for emerging leaders. We have also supported the Equity Collaborative, which looks at equity through our HR processes across lots of health systems across the country. And we benchmark ourselves with McKinsey data. So it's like, are we actually moving the needle faster um, in the organizations that are focused on diversity and equity? Um, We continue to bring the cohorts together, talking about tough issues like societal health. Um, We had a big conversation about the Dobbs decision and the impact on healthcare and women's reproductive health freedom. And, um, But what I realized is just bringing these women together, they get re-energized. They all have their personal and professional legacies. They all go through a similar program, which is requirement to be part of the group. You go through this two-day program. What's fascinating is 50% of the women change their jobs within 18 months, which tells you that once women figure out where they really want to have impact or influence, the second question is, are you in the job that's going to allow you to do that? And a lot of women say, no, I'm not. And they actually pivot and find the job that will allow them to have the greatest impact. And you find that they're actually personally and professionally a lot more satisfied. So, I mean, it's a group that just gets tremendous energy from each other. And we're all different. You know, we have people from federal government. We have people from state governments. We have public health people. We have providers. We have healthcare leaders from a policy as well as a system perspective. We have writers, we have people in marketing and communications, and we have it from philanthropy. They're from all different perspectives, but they have this kind of glue that keeps them together, trying to create an impact both collectively as a group and individually as leaders. Wow. I I just am blown away by that stat about 50%, like five, zero, right? Percent of attendees end up shifting their, leaving their job within 18 months after having this realization, because I do feel like it's very common to see people in roles that kind of naturally roll into one another, right? It's like, it's like you're in this role and then, you know, your next job is sort of the next step forward. That seems the most logical. And you kind of keep on a path for a while. And, and admittedly, I was in big corporate society sort of before founding Wombi, And I was in the same exact space where I was just kind of one role, the next role, getting little promotions along the way, and just kind of going along my, my way. And I actually had a similar aha moment where I was like, am I having the biggest impact I can have right now? And when I tried to have that impact at my previous organization, I felt like I wasn't able to do that. And that gave me a moment of pause to say, okay, well, I need to sort of shift course. But I think what you've done is you've created a platform where people can have this conversation regularly to challenge themselves about, you know, am I in a place where I can live my truth, like bring my impact, bring all of me to the table and then have that result? Because when we don't do that, I think we just get stuck in these sort of stair-step sort of mode of progression. Women often do what's put in front of them instead of doing things with and for a purpose. 
And what we do is say, what is the purpose? Like, what is the impact that you want to have? Then making decisions in service of that. You know, it's interesting. Some of the women have actually used their legacy statement, like in job interviews. One woman at the end of her interview, like got a standing ovation. So it can be incredibly powerful if you are using that impact statement to really make decisions, certainly about jobs, but about a lot of the other stuff in your life too. One of the women actually, you know, she made a personal decision. She goes, I'm not going to wait to start my family. You know, she was, I think, 34 or 35 years old. And she actually is incredibly influential and powerful. It was the time that she said, this is actually what I want to do. So she has, has two kids and her leadership track didn't actually miss a beat. And I think because she'd actually made that decision, she just kind of accelerated because everything was kind of lined up. Wow. That's so moving too, because when you think about it, it's the full sort of life. I think about this a lot, but it's, we kind of compartmentalize our job, our family, maybe our spirituality, hobbies, whatever we're doing, we're kind of compartmentalizing all these like little pieces of who we are. And at the end of the day, we're just one person. This is a whole human and you're impacting each of those areas, no matter whether you are doing it volitionally and in a conscious way or not. And so if you do it volitionally, you're going to feel so much more purpose. And I think right now as a collective, as an industry, there's a lot of talk about how to get people reconnected to their why so that they stay in their work. So we know that you need to spend 20% of your job time on something you really love. You only have to spend 20. You know, if you spend less, it doesn't have the greatest impact. If you spend more, you don't get any greater engagement. 20 seems to be that kind of sweet spot. So when I actually round and I, and actually when I talk to my executive team, I actually spend some time asking them, what do they love and how much time are they doing? That is the way to actually create that stickiness. And Dr. Conroy, if I could ask you, what do you love the most about your work? And do you spend 20% of time on it? (laughs) Well, you know, women of impact and actually mentoring women, supporting women. I mean, I love doing that. And actually, I work a lot of that into my day job. It's not too difficult to spend an hour on the phone with somebody in Utah or somebody in, you know, New Orleans or somebody in Texas, you know, that I get connected to through multiple organizations to, number one, mentor them, but also support them and kind of answer questions about navigating life, even though how I've done it may not be right for them, just kind of giving them somebody that they can talk to. And I do get some SOS calls, not a lot, but, you know, I get calls like I have to talk to you. You know, I have this job opportunity. I don't know who to talk to, to kind of say, what should my next steps be? And that's actually very, really fulfilling. I have to say though, that I really love the aspect of my job that gives you kind of personal connection to people. Like I did some night nurse rounding for nurses month. And I did that on Monday night. And it's much better to have meaningful conversations with six people over an hour and a half than it is to give ice cream sandwiches to 150 people. It's just appreciating that time with that person and not rushing on to the next kind of unit that you have to give snacks to. I think we could do with a lot more of that. 
less rush, rush, and more being kind of present and appreciative of individuals. You know, I have to say that I actually went and I had an eye exam in this young optometrist who just had her first child, been out on maternity leave and was back. She loved her job and was so appreciative of the support and infrastructure. We talked a lot about childcare, which gave me a lot of really good feedback about how we could improve our childcare access. And I'm going to write her a note thanking her afterwards, just appreciating the fact that she was so efficient, but also so present and also shared with me how much she liked her job. So it's that human connection that I think gives everybody, you get more than you give, but it's the glue that keeps us all together. So I'll said, and I think back to the quilt that you described a little bit earlier about how the interactions with patients kind of build, uh, make up your quilt as you become a provider. And almost it's like the stitching is almost like your relationships with other healthcare workers and people along the way um, that tie it together. It is beautiful how this, the work in healthcare is just a symphony of relationships and how they kind of play together. I know there's an underpinning of it that it's a business and their processes, and it's a system, but they're people that are in that system. And just making sure that the people are as supported and connected as they can be. I mean, you could take that analogy on that loose thread. I mean, when you start to lose the threads, you could argue that our healthcare workforce problems across the U.S. are just, we've started to lose the threads in our quilts. And how do you actually stitch those back together? And I think a lot of it starts with this sort of community feeling of, you know, you have my back. I'm part of a group here that supports me. And I also feel that I'm doing the work that I love and I'm feeling that I'm living my purpose. I think it's the things you've laid out before with how you've created culture in all of your roles, but really looking at people being able to kind of absorb what's happening in the moment, lean on each other, process, and then kind of continue to bring their best selves. And that's what it's all about. It is. But, you know, healthcare is a great profession. People say, oh, healthcare is hard. Yeah, it's hard. We're working hard to make it better. But if we don't do it, who will? That's what I say to my team. We're the people best prepared to navigate through what are kind of some stormy waters right now in healthcare. But if we don't do it, who will? So let's like buckle up and kind of get to work and lead the teams through this. Here, here. Love that. And if you could say one thing to an aspiring leader in, in closing our conversation today, what would you tell them to the leader who's just kind of starting to get their feet wet um, and going into this work? And it is hard work, as you said, it could be daunting. A couple of things. Number one, uh, appreciate as you move into a leadership role, the fact that you are assuming personal and professional risk and just hold that and be aware that with leadership and responsibility comes accountability. Just appreciate that, number one. And I said, the second thing is, it's all about relationships. It's not necessarily about having the right answer. It's actually being able to come to that solution with an army of people around you and leading them with a solution that have a lot of fingerprints on it. So it's not being right necessarily. It is actually moving everybody in that 
appropriate direction. Yeah, there are a lot of young physician leaders that think they have to have the right answer. That's necessary, but not sufficient. Thank you so much, Dr. Conroy, for being with us today and sharing your stories with us. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm Rebecca Corin. Thanks for listening to Moments Move Us. Remember, when you put people first, your actions can move others in unexpected ways. Be sure to follow wherever you get your audio.